1: Strange Familiars. Tonight we're going to be talking with Joshua Cutchin about his most recent book, Thieves in the Night. But before we get to that, if you have a story of something strange you encountered, something paranormal, or any kind of story you think we should cover, please get in touch. podcast at gmail.com or StrangeFamiliars.com, you can always find us there. Strange Familiars is brought to you by our patrons. If you'd like to be a patron, if you'd like to help us make the podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's lots of different options there, different levels of support, and you can get things like t-shirts, patches, and more. But even $3 a month, you get full extra episodes of Strange Familiars. So if you'd like to help us out, if you'd like to support the show, check it out. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. I also wanted to remind everybody that my newest book is out now. It's available on Amazon.com and at your local bookstore. It's called Don't Look Behind You. You can find it by typing in the title or by typing in my name, Timothy Renner, at Amazon. I cover a lot of the things we talk about here on Strange Familiars, some of my own experiences and more, and it's got a lot of my artwork and some of my best illustrations, I think, I've done. That's Don't Look Behind You. Again, it's at Amazon or wherever you buy books. The reaction to the Broken Circle series was wonderful. It seemed everyone really liked it. They were definitely fun for me to put together. It was a lot of production work, and it was hard to get the audio even and so forth. When we do shows like that, we're using multiple different recording methods. But I did my best, and everybody seemed to like it, and I'm excited about that. And we'll be doing more like that in the future. Uh, maybe not necessarily true crime, but some more kind of produced episodes like that. They take a long time to put together, so we can't do them all the time. But we have more like that coming up. I'm glad everybody liked it. And like we said, hopefully we'll have more information on Jenny Beam and, and a follow-up to The Broken Circle in the future. So let's get to our conversation with Joshua Kutchin. writing questions like i used to write out questions first of all half the time i'd never read them anyway and then the other half of the time whoever i'm talking to has either answered all the questions on their own before i ever got to them or said much more interesting things that that led down different paths anyway so that's probably what's going to happen yeah and before we get done remind me i'm going to have you choose two random numbers and they will be for the book giveaway so. Oh geez, okay, cool. But we'll do that a little bit later. Let me get a drink and then we'll get started. Joshua Cutchin, my future co-author, welcome partner to in crime. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> welcome to Strange and Millers. We'll talk a little bit about that. Of course, we don't want to give too much away because it's so far down the road. The end is nowhere near in sight.
2: Yeah, it's it's only just beginning. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, actually there's. You know, there, there there are some things I think I'm sort of rounding the corner on in terms of getting some of my stuff squared away, but I still have a lot of stuff to look into. I just ordered Rob Briggs's books and finally getting around to digging into George Hansen, the Trickster and the Paranormal, and then actually tomorrow morning I'm waking up uh, bright and early. And I'm getting out to the library at UGA to sort of dig into some stuff that's out there that, you know, those books that you don't want to buy because there's, like, one thing in them <laughs> that you think might have something in it. Right. So, right. yeah, so that's that's where I'm off to tomorrow morning, first so that, thing.
1: That's a good question. And and I wonder this myself because I have a very a malleable schedule. Now, the podcast is, has somewhat firmed that schedule up a little bit. But, for instance, I don't have a specific thing. Like, when I wake up... I, you know, I will work on something, write a book or I will, you know, write on a book, write something I'm working on. I'll work on the podcast or I'll do some research, but it's not like I have a scheduled time, like between, you know, 11 a.m. and 1 p.m. I research and 1 p.m. and 2 p.m. I write or whatever. Do you have a set schedule
2: like that Where when you're doing writing? I mean, uh, uh, of course I don't because we're people with non-structured lifestyles are, are brought to the towards this sort of thing, you know, um, <laughs> It's more about the times that I have that are things, but you know my schedule is not conventional as it is. I mean, I, I pick up gigs here and there, and I even my like standard visiting schools to teach gigs they fluctuate from week to week because of school schedules and because of you know I suppose I have a student that I saw for a lesson tonight, he had to cancel for you know various reasons so i'm I'm never really ever doing the same thing all the time, so I carry a couple of books that I need to look through in my in my car, and my biggest problem is that. I don't know how to stop working in a lot of ways. So if I'm not doing something music related, I'm always almost always doing something that's, you know, pushing my next book project forward, you know, so I'm doing, looking up stuff online. Even when I'm supposed to be relaxing, you know, I'll, I'll be playing a video game with my podcast on, listening for something. I mean, there's so many little leads here and there that just come from mainstreaming eight or nine different paranormal podcasts every week, right. you know, And it's not even like something is mentioned, like a case is mentioned. It's just someone will say something and then you sort of like, you know, draw this A to B to C sort of diagram that says, oh my gosh, I can't believe I never thought of that, you know? Oh, yeah.
1: I mean, that's a big thing, connecting A to B and B to C. I, I guess that's one of the biggest kinships I've felt with you that I think is something we both really enjoy doing. It's like, oh, wait, now here's this. Now this
2: is, you know, what about this? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, and I was thinking about this today, because I'm literally like, I, it feels a little bit like Christmas tonight, Go into the library tomorrow, <laughs> like I'm really excited to, I've got a list of about 25 different books that I need to look up, and I'm going to go there, and I'm going to, you know, get, get all the information that I need, and, and from what I gather of, of your method, like that's sort of, I can imagine you going into, you know. I imagine that you approach libraries and research in the same way. Like yeah, I always feel like Gandalf, you know, dusting off, <laughs> yeah, dusting yeah. off something in the Minas Tirith library. You know? <laughs> I, yeah, I just I
1: love research. I have a you know a good friend who uh, is way more part of academia than than I will ever be. Who has right. suggested like, why don't you you know do research professionally for people? I'm like, well, I would maybe if the paycheck was there, but I certainly love doing it myself. I could just. You well, know, and I never stop. That's the other thing that I'm getting ready to publish the second book on Toad Road. I never thought I'd get two books out of that. Never thought I'd get two books out of that. But I, you know, I I keep researching. I keep finding stuff and like really cool stuff. I'm like, all right, that that should have gone in the first book, and then suddenly, I had oh. enough for a second book.
2: Yeah, well, you know, the, the problem with doing research professionally is that if you, if you're in that sort of a gig economy, you, you end up researching the cost of you know, shoes in Victorian, (laughs) you know, in in, in Victorian brothels or something. And that's something just absolutely inane. But uh, I think that this new book of yours is going to be pretty darn special. I like it better than Beyond the Seventh Gate myself.
1: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I think it's, there's more of me in it. So I was able to write more of me in it, if that makes sense. Yeah. It was more than just stating, you know, this happened here and that happened there. You know, there's, there's more of me in there, so...
2: Well, you know, if somebody really wanted to do a Kraken reality show, they'd send you to like a portal area type place for a season. <laughs> like that's, that's the reality show. That's the next big, you know, the next big thing is they send you to, you know, Marley Woods or, I mean, maybe not Skinwalker, but they send you to it's like, you know, some sort of obscure place and you just, I mean, I, I eat that stuff up and I don't think, I mean, here we are, uh, you know, massaging each other's egos, but I, I really don't think anybody quite does it with the diligence that you do so that's all for that
1: thank you so much so the book that we're talking about thieves in the night a brief history of supernatural child abductions way back when you were beginning this i had you on to talk about changelings and i think you had just started the book then i I almost felt a little bad like are we giving away too much but no the the book is thick (laughs) with a lot (laughs) of information in there
2: yeah, they just keep on uh, keep on getting bigger, and I feel bad about it. Eventually, one of these days, and it might be might be our project, honestly. Something's going to need to be split in two. You know, a volume yeah. one and a volume two. Yeah, um,
1: <laughs> there's a lot of
2: information. Yeah, yeah, we've we've bitten off a lot <laughs> more than we can chew for this next project, folks. I think sometimes, but anyway. Um, that aside, yeah, I really sort of went. You know, I had this I had this real bugaboo about making sure that we get as much stuff into the book as we can be as thorough as we can. Yeah. And I've, I've slowly had to back off from that. But even now, after the fact, even though it's, you know, a 400 something page book, Including, you know, that includes like 150 pages of references in notes and index. Um, but even, you know, setting that aside, I still see books that might have just a slight variation on one of the stories. And and I'm just, I just, I get upset that I wasn't able to include it. So oh that, yeah, guess, yeah, that's the hardest part for me. We've talked about that before. It's
1: inevitably, whenever you publish a book, you'll find something afterwards. Even with the historical Wildman books, I find articles, you know, that could have gone in the Pennsylvania book or could have gone in the California book all the time so i'm gonna you know whenever i'm done the whole rest of the country i'll have to do this addendum book with all the stuff i've found that could have gone in the original books i mean we're both completists which is the danger about working together i think that's the, the well, hard that
2: and the other thing i really oh sorry go ahead
1: <laughs> well i just it's going to be difficult for either one of us to convince the other one that doesn't need to go in there because we're both completists you know what i mean
2: <laughs> yeah, I, I totally know what you mean. It's it's the completest idea. And, you know, I think you've got to have you've got to go into things like this with the attitude that it's not going to be released. It's It's got to escape. And, you know, at some point, somebody's just got to push it out of the out of the nest.
1: Right. Yeah. And that, that has to happen with all things. I mean, that's, you know, I, I've worked with some very creative people who can never give up. You know, they can never let it go. And, right. uh, you, you, know, at some point you have to, you have to say it's done. It's,
2: it's... Well, you know, being a musician, we've all met that guy who, who's like working on his al- first album and it's like 12 years, you know? <laughs> oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I was specifically uh, oh, yeah. talking about a, mu- a musician actually
1: when I said that. Nice.
2: <laughs> that's, that's the other thing is that that it's, gets to be frustrating. And I understand why it happens. So it's nobody's fault, but you release the book and then all the great stories from people come in, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh Yeah. You're, you can talk about the, you're, you're writing it as much as you want to, and you'll get a little trickle here and there. But as soon as you write the book, everybody's like, "I had a story. I had a story that shouldn't be in your book." And it's like, "That's great. I guess I'll put it, you know on the shelf for the revised version." And honestly, I do think there's some revised versions of some of my books coming up in the future. Especially a Trojan Feast. I think there's a lot more that I could have have said about that because I was sort of finding my legs. But uh, right, right. Yeah. Sometimes you just gotta you just gotta say stop and just let it let it go. Yeah. So.
1: This is sort of a very mundane question, but at what point did you did you think the book on supernatural child abduction has to be written?
2: No, that's a good question because it's not. I mean, it's not any. It's not a subject that you really. If once you start looking into it, it's not a subject that you want to spend time with. It takes you to a lot of really unsettling places. My main impetus for this was that. I wrote a good deal about fairy folklore in A Trojan Feast, which for some reason has really resonated with me, that that aspect of the unexplained. And I didn't really write more than a couple of paragraphs, really, in The Brimstone Deceit about fairies. And I'm like, I really would really love to get back into that, because if you can do research that doesn't feel like research, that's half the battle, and that's definitely one of those situations. So, I looked into that and I thought, well, that's that's a good reason to do it." And then you know, part of it was me trying to square up another aspect of alien lore with fairy lore, and vice versa. You know, specifically the alien hybrid concept, the idea that human beings are having their DNA combined with extraterrestrials. I wanted to see if there was a way that I could find some sort of analog for that in fairy lore because I believe strongly, especially after completing this book that you will always find an analog for one and the other, even if they aren't the exact same thing. I tend to think that they are, but you'll always find an analog for one and for the other. so it was really, really me trying to be intellectually honest about that and then lastly, you know um once I started going down those two routes the the really the real clincher was the fact that there isn't a one stop shop for changeling lore anymore. The book that I've referenced a couple of times in some other shows is from, I believe, the nineteen thirties. It's only in German and there are only a handful of copies um, still available. Uh, it's called Der Wechselbaugh. And so the, the, obviously there isn't really, you know, your sort of one stop shop for finding out changeling lore. And especially in English, but especially in print <laughs> and especially, you know, readily available. Those were a lot of the different reasons why I sort of ended up looking in this direction. And uh, it's I generally have not been a person who has been because, you know, if you if you if you if you run around and, you know, especially the evangelical circles, they'll say that you there are certain things that you don't need to put into your mind, you know, certain media that you shouldn't watch because it can actually open you up to things. But after spending some time with this stuff, I kind of wonder if that's not the case, you know, taking a look at these things, because it is such a dark place. And even if there isn't something metaphysical going on there you can't unread some things (laughs) that's for sure you can only look into you know stories of people gold plating human fetuses for magical occult practice in thailand (laughs) and 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 and, you know go to sleep easily it just doesn't happen
1: right and we're talking about for the large part uh you know missing children kidnapped presumably for whatever reason so it you know it it's it goes to a dark place, but I really like the conclusion you make at the end where you, where you talk about basically this is part of re-enchanting the world, and you phrased it much better than i did but, but but to paraphrase it, you kind of said, even if fairies aren't real, they provide a sort of magical way of looking at trees or 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 you know so forth of of interacting with nature, say um my own like what I've been saying lately and I've come to it like this like so I used to say like well isn't it neat that these fairy stories and these this folklore from the past sure sounds a lot like things we're talking about today and I've moved to that even further where I say and and I'll I'll quote myself when I said like maybe what we were calling fairy tales are really just tales of the fairies and maybe those were crypted reports that, you know, they get changed over time. It's a little bit of whispering down the lane. But also we're looking at things through a different cultural lens now. Because there's so much in common. Like, we could spend, I don't know how many episodes, just drawing uh, equivalencies between changeling stuff and alien abductions and Sasquatch stuff and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Which is a great deal of what you do in the book in a readable way, but... You know that's that's where I'm living lately. You know what I mean? I, I don't know that it's you know it's nothing. I have to win you over to certainly, right?
2: But well, uh, I, I I personally believe that one of the most um retarding things to this particular venture of studying the unknown has been the manner in, in which we have siloed ourselves off into these different sort of discrete camps. I, I think that it's really stymied growth. I mean, you have some people who who want to take one of those things, one of those silos. And honestly, I'm guilty of this to some degree. But people who want to take one of those silos, I think the ufologists are the most guilty of this. And blanket that with everything, um, you know. So Bigfoot is an alien. Uh, you know, time slips are because of aliens. You know, anything anomalous is is because of extraterrestrials. Similarly, you know, you have the well again. Some some of the some of the more evangelical circles, Christianized circles that are saying that everything is demons, and I th- I think that what they fail to see is that the, the, the failure in that perception is that any one of those concepts is right on its own. You know, <laughs> we we have we have five silos, and one of them is correct, and all the other ones have got to nest into it. When they're not really seeing that they're all separate things in inside one silo like it I, I was one larger silo in other words the five russian dolls are not going to nest in them inside themselves they're nesting and they're just in one giant nesting russian doll right right yeah um and and you know i think that people probably get me a little bit wrong when i talk about fairies all the time because i fairy lore is extremely resonant and we've talked about this some i believe but There's a problem because fairy used to be kicked around the same way that we kick around the term supernatural. So a lot of people would say, oh, that's a fairy or that's fairy. And and so it looks like it's all fairy lore, but that just means that's just their way of using the term for supernatural. But having said that, um, I think fairy lore is really explicative, but I don't think that the fairy lore is completely accurately describing these phenomena. It's a way of understanding these phenomena, but I don't think that a lot of the Codified, structured, rigid ideas of fairyland being underground, and you know, I I don't think any. I think I think it's an attempt to explain something, and I think that it's. I almost treat it as a means of linking different disciplines that are themselves within something else. You know, I don't know what I don't know what fairy lore is describing. I don't know what the extraterrestrial, particularly the 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 the, uh, direct contact experience, is describing. Not even really sure now, after diving into this book, uh, what the, these Bigfoot encounters are describing. But I'm sure that they're at least describing aspects of the same thing, if not the very same thing. And uh, one of those one of those threads that really runs through all these things. Honestly, I didn't think it would run through the Bigfoot thing as much as it has, but it's pr- pretty surprising. Is fairy lore, mm-hmm. and it's really, really, really interesting to me how that, that sort of almost. The, the connectivity and the resonance and, and, the, and the durability, I guess is probably a good way of putting it. The durability of that body of belief is never ending in terms of how it keeps on unfolding and revealing new things to me.
1: Oh, yeah. Do you think, for instance, like, and I'm trying to think of the the, the way to phrase this, which isn't uh, completely bonkers, but let's, let's say... Some... We're among friends. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> So, it's an old fairy report, say, and they're talking about, you know, an elf or something like this. You know, some sort of weird creature that they say, see. Let's, you know, it's a little red cap or something. Do you think they were seeing the exact same thing that people are seeing now when they see a gray alien, for instance? Or do you think they, they literally were seeing something different? Like, I mean culturally these things seem to change you know i mean there's enough between them but there's but it seems like things grow and change like with the culture which is really really interesting
2: i think that a lot of the people that i think a lot of are sort of we're all sort of triangulating in on the same thing and i know it's folly to think that we're getting towards an answer but there's sometimes when i really wonder if we are you know, I think there's a lot of strength in the model that Greg Bishop is talking about now, with the idea of co-creation, the idea that there is something objective, but we are bringing a lot of our own baggage to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not – the idea has a lot of antecedents, but Greg is really trying to sort of take it even further with ideas pertaining to information theory and other things like that. You know, I you have to say that there is a there is a user-generated component to this, I mean, that has to be the case because there are similarities, certainly, between the fairies of yesterday and, and the gray aliens of today, let's say. There are similarities between the Gilly Doo or the Woodwoes or the Green Man and Sasquatch, but they're not a one-to-one match in all cases. Some cases you'll find they are a one-to-one match. Right. At the same time, um, you have things, sightings today, fairy sightings today that are unambiguously of little people. You know, that seemed very much of a different flavor than those gray alien inter- interactions. So, you know, I think that <laughs> they're probably... The same thing is there, but the same thing is not seen, if that makes any sense. Okay, yeah. Um, for for whatever for whatever reasons, uh, you know, individual bias, um, the way that the phenomena wishes to be seen, perhaps some features of the land or something along those lines. I mean, it's interesting. I I feel like one of the best models out there for really explaining these things is really, you know, Neil Gaiman's American Gods, which is, you know, this idea that people bring their belief systems and their gods with them and they tend to inhabit parts of the landscape. I mean, that's the reason that, you know, there there are certain fairy traditions that were imported into the eastern coast of Canada and the, uh, you know, the, the northeast as well. It's, this, it's the reason why, you know, you might have stories of pixies, in wales amongst a mining community that was mostly settled by the cornish you know you don't have pixies in wales pixies are cornish but in terms of the the people they brought those beliefs with them and because they brought those beliefs with them that was what was perceived that's what was seen right and i know it's kind of silly to say fiction might be (laughs) closest to uh closest to to reality but sometimes you know especially if we're dealing if, if if we're in this sort of imaginal realm perhaps that really is sort of what's going on
1: yeah and and i think you know when we get into this area of folklore too a lot lot of people and this is a big you know drumbeat of mine a lot of people like equate folklore to fiction yes and no i mean yeah there is a fictional element to folklore especially as time goes on and it gets further away i think probably from from the original story or other stories get folded into it and i mean this is the folk process this happens It's a big game of whispering down the lane. Like I said, it just goes on and on. People add to it, people subtract from it. That's the folk process. But, you know, I think there's these fictional elements that are also very real ways of transmitting ideas, which are practical ways to communicate people's experiences with the other and sometimes even how to
2: deal with the other. Uh, Right, and I think that, instead of looking at the object, we should really be looking at the effect on the witness. And I know this is something that gets kicked around a lot, but I mean, if you look at the motifs and you look at the emotions that are inspired, they are extremely consistent. You can treat these things as being, you know, re-skinned versions of these older mythologies. Right. And, you know, it, and it, but, but sometimes you have to sort of squint and look sideways at some of these motifs and how they're expressed. I think something that gets lost a lot is the fact that a direct inversion of a motif can be an expression of the same motif. So one of the things I talk about in the book is how, you know, in the Changeling stories, beings from the other world would take a sick child of the other world, leave it in the human world, and take the desirable, healthy human child to the other world. So that, that, that doesn't quite... Map on to what you see in modern hybrid stories. There are similarities between the way that you know alien hybrids look and the way that changelings looked, and the, I, I go into some of those motifs. But what you've also got to look at is like the Indigo Children idea or the Star Children idea is a clever inversion of that. So you have these beings of the other world taking a more desirable child from the other world and leaving it in the human world. Similarly, you know uh, there are some ideas that twins who one of whom might die in the womb. This is actually a pretty pretty New Age concept, but the idea that if there's a twin that dies in the womb, well, that's the perfect child, and, and it's living amongst the extraterrestrials, while the less perfect human child is the one that survived. And again, this idea that of the dead living amongst extra- extraterrestrials really does resonate with that idea of fairies and the dead and the way that they would often commingle. Similarly, finally, you know, in a lot of these sort of star child s- scenarios, it's often said that the child may feel as if their human, their human parents are not their true parents. And again, that's another sort of inversion of the changeling motif. It's the humans instead of the humans, not belonging to the child, but also the adults rather than the children being the ones who have been, you know, sort of supplanted. So you have to sort of look at these things. I think, (laughs) you know, it sort of reminds me of, of music, a, uh, a sixth or a third are both consonants, and they're different <laughs> intervals, but they're kind of the same interval too. You know, if you right. have, a, yeah, if you have an F against a D or a D against an F, it still has the same sort of consonant sound. I'm sorry, anybody who doesn't understand that <laughs> understand that <laughs> metaphor, but that's kind. It's kind of the way I feel about it. We should have a keyboard so we could
1: demonstrate while we're
2: <laughs> <laughs> right. Absolutely. Well, let's step back,
1: and for those who didn't listen to the Changeling show, and shame on you if you didn't. Because I don't know how many episodes <laughs> ago that was, the changeling sort of trope has been. I mean, there's there's no beginning to it, and and no end. I mean, it's it's it goes right along, right hand in hand with humanity. You know, as long as we've been keeping records and so forth, and it's basically the fear or the the I guess it's the reality if it happens to you of something and coming and, and taking your child and often replacing it with. Uh, something that may or may not look like your child, but that is not your child. And this was blamed on fairies. This was blamed on all manner of, of supernatural creatures, depending on the culture. I mean, it was a very real fear for people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I would argue that it's in some sense, a very real fear today. I mean, once you start seeing this motif, it crops up everywhere. You can look at the first season of stranger things where, you know, spoiler alert, I don't know if you've, have you seen it? Am I going to yeah, spoil it for you? Yeah. No, I've seen it. Okay. Seen it. <laughs> so spoiler alert, uh, hide your ears if you haven't seen it, but they find a uh, a fake body of Will Byers, and that sort of, that has some of the fingerprints of the changeling phenomena, you know, in the, in the terms of the dead and lifeless stock. Similarly, I would argue that the entire second season is almost a changeling story in and of itself, you know, he's, he's come back from the other world and he's not himself, there's right. something inside of him. But it was, you know, right. It it was a very real, real fear. And the fact that it was as culturally widespread as it was, I think, you know, warrants, uh, should give us pause. You know, you look at their similar beliefs in, uh, Africa, you know, obviously all throughout Europe, some parts of Asia, uh, the, I, I, one of the things that I always find really interesting is, you know, the fact that you can basically almost do a one-to-one mapping of of the djinn onto fairies as well. Um, yeah, yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting in I, in the British Isles specifically. There is little evidence for the changeling motif prior to Christianity. So there's a lot of there's a lot of like I wouldn't say Christian baggage, but there's a lot of almost Abrahamic baggage that sort of talks about this idea of substituted children and about children who are not of their parents, who are not of sometimes, you know, the body of God or whatever. But I mean, it's, it's such a pervasive theme. And even, you know, I mean, even again, looking at pop culture, you can look at any story about, you know, a a killer child as almost being (laughs) sort of a, a changeling motif itself to say nothing of the fact that, you know, there are some very serious and very sobering medical conditions Especially, you know developmental disorders that seem to be explicatory of I would argue a majority not all but a majority of these cases or you know maybe all of these cases and it's you know that's it's that both and sort of thing <laughs> right yeah is it third rail to say autism in regard to this or yeah I mean I was I mean I can't tell you how much anxiety I had writing the last couple of chapters of this book and sort of going down that yeah down... I mean it's 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 hard to do
1: because. This is what i have I have problems writing the on the missing people stuff as well, right for modern cases, especially this is real stuff that just happened to real families, and when you start laying these kind of supernatural explanations over it it doesn't feel like a kind thing to do. Does that make sense?
2: Oh, a hundred percent i mean yeah. and, and 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 to have someone who is struggling with these issues and to say, "Oh no, your child is really blessed by fairies or something." <laughs> It's just, yeah. I can't, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I'm, I'm chuckling because it's such an uncomfortable idea. But uh, but at the same time, I think that a we as as paranormalists in general have to get comfortable with the idea that something can be two things at once. You know,
1: mm-hmm.
2: something can have multiple explanations at once. So maybe sometimes people were actually taken by fairies, and maybe sometimes people were suffering from a birth, from a developmental disorder and maybe sometimes people were you know touched by the divine and have a developmental disorder i mean you know there's there's certainly enough cross cultural interpretations to suggest that possibility but it's it's a fine line to thread i actually consulted with some friends of mine a couple different friends who actually have children who have certain developmental disabilities to say you know am i is anything i'm saying here super you know offensive or you know is there is there anything that you would change they had very little to say in in terms of that topic, which I realize that you know a couple of people don't speak for an entire community. Right. And I'm sure if I'm sure if this book got national recognition, I would have my share of hate mail. <laughs> um, but but I th- I think that there is something I think that there's something in there. I don't know exactly how much of it is applicable, but there's something in there. There's something in that hypothesis that you know these people who are touch to use that you know old-fashioned quaint term might actually have you know some sort of spark of the divine or actually have had some sort of contact with the divine
1: it's more uncomfortable i think to apply it forward than backwards and by that what i mean is say it's easier to look back at these some of these changeling cases and and wonder was that just autism happening Mm. You, you know as opposed to Applying it forward and, at, to you know modern cases of autism and saying is this a changeling
2: thing? Yeah, it, it, at the same time, that's a central failing of the way that we interpret a lot of afflictions in you know medieval society. A lot of people think that if you were epileptic, they would deem you a witch, and that's not quite the proper interpretation. In some cases, yes, but in other, in most cases, it was it was deemed that witches caused epilepsy. Mm-hmm. um similarly you know it was believed it wasn't believed that if you had a cleft palate that you were a fairy it was believed that the fairy might have caused that cleft palate in that sense you know these like a cleft palate was something that there was actually medicine that existed to remedy that condition in a very physical way so a lot of times we conflate cause with sort of a an identifier of these people who are touched by the other so i i think that we consider our Ancestors unintelligent at our peril, and I think that there i mean if you look at the the literature, there really is no shortage of people who were quick to interpret changelings as this one's just a medical disorder, this one's a medical disorder, this one's a medical disorder, oh wait, this one's different <laughs> and and sometimes you know now and again you do find that in mm-hmm. the literature well, I guess I'm guilty
1: of that as well it It is easier to what well, is a fault to look back and say you know oh, they were. They didn't know what they were talking about, and again, I, you know, I, I've talked about this in regards to my Bigfoot books, the historical ones, where you know, no people knew what they were looking at, you know, just because it was the 1800s, doesn't mean they were some dumb farmer who didn't know the difference between a raccoon and a and something that was eight foot tall and walking on two legs, you know. Right. I've been guilty of it myself, and I've I've called people out on on the same thing myself,
2: and I think there is some of that. That you have to, you know, if you're being honest, you have to look at and say, well, this is you know, this is a little bit, I mean, especially with what you look at, you know, there's so much yellow journalism and, you know, an effort to sell papers. And then you have people pushing particular re- religious agendas, you know, I would argue in some cases more so than today. I think most of, <laughs> I think at least hoaxes in, in yesteryear, hoaxes and liars in yesteryear had a purpose. Now I think they just do it to do it, honestly. <laughs>
1: Well, I'm, and again, this is you, you know, this is stepping into part of of what's to come in our other book. But I, I think I'm with Ritzman on this. I I think hoaxes are part of the whole thing now. They just are. It's not a pleasant part of it, and it's a part that you know I think many of us wish wasn't there. But it's it's just there. It's part of the whole. I don't like to call it trickster because I think that's just and we've talked about this before. It doesn't matter if you call it right. the gin or fairy or, you know, you're just you're just putting a different name on it. But I think the trickster mask is one of the masks that we put on the other that represents its true face cl- closer than other masks. that <laughs> If That makes any sense.
2: Well, no. It's again, it's it's that description. It's the same description as with you know fairies. You can say well, that's that that's like fairy lore, and that doesn't mean that it's a fairy. It just says that this is a really explicative way of talking about it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think I think that the trickster archetype is something that is entirely appropriate in a lot of the in in practically all of these subjects. The the where people fall short is where they assume that there is an actual trickster out there, which I mean, in a, in a Jungian sense, maybe. And I, I'm not ruling that out, but I, I don't think that's. I don't. I honestly don't think that's what's going on. It doesn't. Doesn't quite sit well with me. Yeah. Well, I um, mean, I, I
1: think that's an aspect of. But yeah, I think you know? that. <laughs> We're. I, well, this and, gets and in I such gray area. That there's an. There are features of it which have aspects of tricksterism. It's so bizarre to talk about this stuff.
2: Well, I mean, I, I think that. I think that literally the fact that hoaxes exist might be part of what feeds this phenomena. You know i was I was talking with some friends of mine the other day, and there was some su- there was a suggestion, and we all shot it down for obvious reasons but there was a suggestion that you know what if we can actually coax out the phenomena by creating a hoax <laughs> you know mm-hmm. in this sort of conjuring of Philip sort of way i mean, I mean you're familiar you're familiar with the conjuring of Philip right
1: uh, not off the top of my head.
2: Oh, okay, great. So there was a, a group, and I'm probably going to get some details wrong here and there, so forgive me anyone who's listening. But there was a group of psychical researchers who said, let's try to fashion a ghost from whole cloth. And through a series of different, you know, different controls that they had, they came up and agreed upon a story of a fictional boy who had died. I believe they deliberately built some inconsistencies into his story, some, some anachronisms, things like that into his story. But they had this entire backstory for him and they had the story that he was part of, I believe this particular house. And anyway, they came together and they began sort of meditating on this. And then they actually literally tried to reach out to this, this boy's spirit, even though he never existed, Philip. And, you know, they started getting all sorts of all sorts of activity. I know that there was definitely, you know, uh, some table tipping stuff and some, some mediumistic stuff. And I believe some Ouija board stuff that all seemed to confirm this particular, uh, this particular story. And I think there were some things that were more dramatic that almost seemed to suggest that there was uh, an objective third party intelligence. Wow. Now I don't, I'm realizing how much I don't know about it, but <laughs> I think, I think, I think the, the, the fact that that exists and, and again, I'm sure uh, apologies if I'm not getting this right. Um, uh, it's been a while since I've read the, read the story, but this is, I mean, this is a pretty well-documented case of basically psychical researchers literally creating, fashioning out of whole cloth an entity, and it says a lot about the role that we play in this, but it also says, I think, some sort of role about uh, of what we do in terms of how these phenomena might sort of, jump onto things that we believe. Yes. So, I mean, you know, the, the, the hardcore psi researcher will say, well, it was, you know, all a projection of these individuals, but someone who is interested in spirit phenomena might say, well, what if there was something listening in on all this and decided to wear that as a skin, you know, and decided to adopt that as, as, as an identity? Yeah, um, I,
1: I mean, I'm reminded immediately of, you know, the people who have admitted to making crop circles. You know, there's right. That, yeah, we we go yeah, out and exactly. we make crop circles, but while we're out there, weird stuff happens all around us.
2: Like Yeah, yeah, exactly. Precisely, precisely. So that, that's 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 why people were floating the idea of a, of a hoax. But I I've, we are all like, uh, we have reputations to keep up. Let's not do that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so our, our 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 focus shifted a little bit. So I think in that sense, you know, what if what if hoaxes are actually um you know, part of what feeds these things. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what if that's why you see it cropping up all the time? And of course you try to have these conversations with a staunch materialist, that, this idea that hoaxes are part of the phenomena and they'll just roll their eyes. Right. Um. But there is a very strong. self. I mean, it's sort of, that's sort of, I mean, explicative of why the hoaxes exist to begin with right there. And the fact that they're rolling their eyes, these things exist to self negate. They exist to cast, Aspersions upon themselves, mm-hmm. and I mean, it, it, to me, it's not really a surprise that you know left brain oriented folks can't grasp that, because I mean, it's such a beautiful literary sort of idea. <laughs> it doesn't surprise me that they're not wired to think that way. But you spend enough time really looking into this and suspending your disbelief, and you start to see that, yeah, that's 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 kind of what's happening. Yeah, you know, it, it's baked right in there.
1: I mean, for me, it it's even boils down to this almost very simplistic idea where some people are just hell-bent on being accepted by, you know, mainstream science or, or approving this in some way to mainstream science. And yeah, I just... I don't think it's ever going to happen. I really don't. And th- these are the kind of people that, you know, you, you can't even talk about the hoax th- thing to, with. You know what I mean? It's like, no nope, those, you know, immediately, you know, it, it disqualifies everything. Cause, because... If if they include hoaxes in it, then that that soils their reputation as a scientist or as you know someone who is a, trying to appeal to science with a capital S.
2: It's one of those things where I mean, I, I hate to, I hate to quote the guy so often, but he's you know I love him or hate him, he's one of the smartest people I've ever listened to. And that's you know Gordon White, and he talks about how we as you know anomalists. He was specifically speaking about magicians, but we as anomalists have as much, in fact, more of a right to, to, to look to the materialists and say, you're playing in our pool. You know, we, we, why do we have to answer to you when, you know, the vast momentum of human experience, and indeed a majority of the 7 billion people who live on this planet feel that these things are real and see them manifest on a regular basis in their lives well, why do we have to try to fit our worldview into your particular narrow framework? Why and, why do we have to cede that authority? Why can't we demand the opposite?
1: Well, it's, it's my my new favorite phrase is uh, is turning their claim on the head that you know extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence why aren't you looking for extraordinary evidence you're only looking for very very ordinary evidence you know
2: the lowest the lowest hanging fruit yeah similarly again people are going to just roll their mind the roll their eyes rather than not their minds <laughs> they might roll their minds um <laughs> we would hope you know, they could roll their minds any significantly advanced magic will look like technology <laughs>
1: yeah yeah i, I mean the, you know extraordinary evidence is going to require i mean i love footprints if we're talking Sasquatch. i think they're so cool like, I'll cast footprints all day long. I love hair samples. I think it's amazing. I'd love to get some hair samples. You know what I mean? Th- these things are incredible. I love them. I think they're valuable. But they're, it's very ordinary evidence. And it's, it's not gotten us anywhere in 50-plus years, you know? Right. And, again, I'm not saying there's no value to it. I think there's incredible value to it. I don't think the value is necessarily going to be DNA tests or dermal ridges i mean it's great they're there but you know as many experts as you can get to fall in line on one side you can you can probably find more to fall in line on the other and claim it's nothing the extraordinary evidence is going to be the weird stuff you know and that's it's just mainstream science isn't ready for it they're not they're not ready for it they're not they may never be ready for it you know and i don't know what to say about it
2: yeah and and you know I I completely agree with you and I I think that I mean I mean, I mean well let's let's be honest here I mean uh, some people will again some people get up in arms about this but we're we're on the winning side like it's things are things are going things are going in the weird direction I think this is super apparent if you look at the emer the you know the magical renaissance if you look at the emergence of people who are into astrology and, you know, neo-paganism. You know, I'm a Christian myself, that's my worldview, but I think that uh, I think that it, we're, we're definitely on the swing to people accepting these things, and I think that, again, science and these topics are not mutually exclusive. It's all in the way that we're approaching the science. Science is a tool, materialism is an ethos, and the materialist model is, is on its knees. I mean, you know, a lot of, I'm not going to talk about quantum ideas, because if you think <laughs> was it wasn't, you told me, if you think you know anything about quantum physics you don't so that's, that's the big that's the big, uh, the big quote um but uh was that me but um did i say that it, it might have been you or might have i think it might i think it was you
0: um,
2: was it? if i did that's
1: brilliant <laughs> or, or well, it was either you or you were quoting somebody else but i think yeah, I, yeah, I, I may have been quoting someone else I, so,
2: but not only that, I think that anybody who can who can read Dean Radin's work, anybody who can read Rupert Sheldrake's work, with a straight face, and then go back to this idea of reductive materialism needs to needs to really wake up. So we're on the not to not to draw battle lines and sort of you know uh, up the rhetoric, but we are on the winning side. I mean, it's 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 going to happen, and it's just a matter of of that particular you know paradigm shifting over, and it's already happening uh you know i have often wondered if what we're not really looking at with all cultures is this is this continuous cycle of you know paganism le- you know leads to religion which really leads to atheism which leads to paganism which leads to religion which leads to atheism <laughs>
1: each
2: each is a reaction to the other and we're just seeing that cycle you know unfolding over and over and over again well, on, but, but we're... on the most basic
1: level and, and this has come up so much recently I was uh, just to give an example, I was at a, a paranormal con, I don't know, three weeks ago, something like this, and there was some police officers there who were who were ghost hunters. And I was talking with them and they said, Yeah, we you know, we get a bunch of guff from the other officers when they're in a group and they said, But but when they're alone, he said, without fault, they'll start telling us stories. And I said, You know what? It's the same thing. Like I will have people who like yeah, I don't. I don't have anything weird. Nothing weird's ever happened to me. And then the, but there was that one time. Yeah, exactly. You, you know, and it's like it's like everybody has something, and it's a matter of drawing it out of them. And you know, sometimes that that something's very minimal. But but it's you know, it seems like everybody's got something. People all the time. You know, no, nah, I don't. There's nothing. Well, there's that one thing. You
2: know. No, I I totally agree with that. I've often thought that. A good idea might be for a book. Might be collecting those stories of people who said no, nothing. But you know, everybody's just like literally, like just set up a set up shop in a coffee coffee house for a month and just collect those stories and just to give people an idea of how you know in depth these things are. I would argue that we have strange things happen to us multiple times on a daily basis. And we find ways to rationalize them and write them off. Like that thing that you see out of the corner of your eye. I'm like, huh, I guess it was nothing. You don't even think about maybe that was something, you know, maybe that was something. I mean, I know even since I've been involved in this, the number of eye rolls that I get and the number of snickers that I get, not the candy, um, <laughs> <laughs> it has, has decreased substantially. I mean, there are people that I, that I talk to and, you know they actually open up about that's really cool it's i you know i totally think that there's something to this you know I, I tend to not bring up that aspect of my life even around musicians who are usually a little bit more open-minded people i just tend to not bring it up because inevitably what they think i think is not what i think but mm-hmm. yeah I, i've been amazed at the number of people who are really open to these ideas and actually one of the things that really hit me and sold me with this is that looking back back when i first started i was in a band and one of the guys was like so do you really believe in ufos and like <laughs> I'll never forget it. uh, uh, Our our lead singer takes a drag of a cigarette and she goes, well, what it's really about is consciousness. And I'm like, this is where the discussion is nowadays? Wow. And I I think it really is. I think it really is.
1: Yeah. I mean, even the fellow on uh, last podcast on the left, whenever he talks about it, the the fellow uh, uh, Henry, who, by the way, has had a flannel man experience, referenced strange familiar, and has not come on come on my show to tell his flannel man experience yet, so Mr. Zabrowski, if you're listening, come on, come on, strange familiars, let's talk flannel man anyway, he repeatedly refers to it as a psychedelic experience people's you know, and I think that's brilliant because and, and he kind of he made a reference the other day to it being a psychedelic experience for the aliens as well. Like we're entering into this like sort of shared psychedelic experience, which is, I mean, that's an incredible way to look at it, you know, and, and, and maybe very valid.
2: I mean, yeah, well that was, that was one of, you know, the things that Terrence McKenna, well, first of all, let's, let's back this up and say that my, uh, you're, you're sort of a Terrence McKenna guy, right? Yes.
1: I mean, I'm not a super bit. well yeah, informed on him, but, but the speeches I've heard that yeah, the, the okay. things I know about him,
2: yes, okay. you know, so yeah, let, let's 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 take a step back, and I will say that if you are into any of these subjects and you aren't at least passingly familiar with some of the concepts behind Terrence McKenna, I judge you so hard. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, because... I mean, it, at least listen to some of the speeches. I mean, they're they're out there; they're easy to find. And uh, you know, if if you're looking for something to listen to or or something to get into, check him out because you know he's an incredible thinker. did did psychedelics lead to the assaults or did he just have an incredible mind that combined with psychedelics is I guess that's the big question
2: I mean yeah And, and and honestly like I have not done any psychedelics some people would criticize that about my in my work um but you know having said that you don't even have to be really into psychedelic culture to appreciate some of the thinking that he that he talks about and one of his ideas was you know What if reality itself is psychedelic, you know, I mean, so the psychedelic state is something that is, you know, in some sense difficult to navigate. It's all very strange, all very alien. It feels fleeting. It's difficult to remember. But that's kind of the way that we are when we're children. So what if you were able to spend months or years in that psychedelic space? Would it feel as natural as reality does? And in that sense, you know, flipping that on its head, what if our reality as we know it is just our sort of default psychedelic mode, which is an idea that I really like. And I think that, again, another one of those things, I feel like the psychedelic experience or rather the altered state, altered consciousness experience is 100 percent at least a part of the quote unquote extraterrestrial contact experience slash fairy experience. 100 percent. If you look at sort of the buzzing that precedes these events, you can find analogs for that in a lot of psychedelic literature. If you look at some of the imagery, it's there. If you look at some of the entities that are encountered in psychedelic states, it's all, it's, it's, it's all there. It really is all there, which, you know, <laughs> why am I too chicken shit to do it? I don't know. It's something I'll I'll embrace. But yeah, it's. There's something to it, and it, it, it's a piece of the puzzle that the ufologists and, the, well, of course, the cryptologists are going to be the last ones to look at it anyway, because they're so thirsty for that scientific cred. Um, but the ufologists, in the same sense, are are just now coming around to, as well.
1: One of the most intense UFO experiences I ever had was was on psychedelics, <laughs> and you know, was it real? I don't. You know, are they ever real? Like my and like when I talk about abduction, I was so happy when I heard. Well, when I was talking with Mike Clelland on Where Did the Road Go? And I said, look, I don't ever think I left my bed. And he said, well, that's exactly the way I describe it for myself. And I was so happy to hear someone else say that. Like, I don't... My body was in my bed. Like, I'm pretty sure. You know what I mean? My mind right. wasn't. I was somewhere else. But my body was in my bed. And to to hear people finally say, no, this counts. You know, I I, I was very hesitant to talk about psychedelic experiences in regards to this stuff because i thought well it doesn't count you know what i mean I, I, right I, I was tripping so it doesn't count and to hear people start saying no it counts you know this is this is we're talking about the same kind of things is uh it's very encouraging you know and we have to start leaving this mind space you know where where it either is or it isn't it either you know it's either a completely real ape walking around or or it's not Well, no, it can't, you know, at the time people see it, I absolutely believe it's real. I believe they could reach out and touch it. It can reach out and touch them. Does that mean it's real in the same way that a squirrel is, you know, that's out there? I, I don't think so. You know, I think it's, it's more woven into this, this experience of the other, which is just
2: really, really weird. Well, and I mean, so I think this is something that is going to need to be said in the forward of the new book, uh, but it is something that I thought of pulling out of a gas station, so I recorded it on audio. (laughs) But um, it's intellectually dishonest to toss out strange Bigfoot reports. I firmly stand behind that. At the same time, it's intellectually dishonest to ignore the fact that a lot of the cases that you see describe beings that behave and have even even just physiological attributes that uh, are resonant with Behavior currently starts studied by primatologists. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about, you know, the fact that you have that commonly, that common, they're very common ape, uh, pursed lips hooting that you see. Right. That's a, that's a trait in a lot of old world apes, uh, pillow erection. So the idea that, you know, their hair stands up when they're agitated, that's something else as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, mid tarsal breaks, dermal ridges on the, on the, on the, on the footprints. These are things that. Right. Are a hundred percent indicative of of a primate, and rocking, I, that's something I,
1: rocking while well, agitated. Uh, uh, yeah, yep, yeah
2: yeah, 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 all these things. These are all things that you know. Uh, you know, in some instances, is brachiating. In some instances, the way that they carry children. I mean, all these things are are very much things that we would expect from primates. So we have to find some sort of you know, <laughs> we have to find that narrow way in between um, something. And this is you know, I'm sure we'll address this. I'm not and I'm not going to be coy about it because I've said it at numerous junctures in the past. I'm really actually kind of actually kind of uh, bullish on the idea that we're not looking at something that's reminiscent of Mike Clellan's owls. So the idea that, you know, if you've read Mike's work there, he he does not make any bones about the fact that there are mundane flesh and blood owls out there. I mean, you can't (laughs) unless you're unless you're living in complete denial. You know, that's you know, that's a thing. There are animals called owls, birds called owls, birds are animals. Anyway, um, <laughs> know, there's always that person who's like, you mean a- animals are mammals? Mm-hmm. No, no, mammals and animals. Anyway, mm-hmm. um, but there are also times when the owls are strange, and there are also times when the owls exhibit attributes that are not like natural owls, and they are attached to something greater. And sometimes I wonder if that's not the case. Sometimes if I wonder if there's not, like, you know, a, a relic population of actual flesh and blood hominids, and that sort of pageantry is adopted by this other sometimes. Because, I mean, you know, if you want to get someone's attention, it's probably a better skin to wear than a deer or an owl.
1: Yeah. But then you have these so, like, the owl thing. Like, around Site 7, Constantly. You know what I mean? And they're they're perfectly normal screech owls. Like th- th- we're recording there, but they're there constantly. You know, does that mean something? I I don't know, but it's certainly interesting.
2: Yeah, maybe. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> I and, mean, uh, yeah. I, honestly, I've I don't think I've ever seen an owl in the wild. I've heard them from time to time, but see, uh, I was I, I was the same way
1: until I read Mike's book. <laughs> Yeah, it's completely bizarre, and and I I mean well you've you've read my book where I talk about you know I, I even felt like I had kind of a lack of owls and I was really sad about it, you know I I thought they should be on the I grew up on a farm I thought we should have owls might have seen one or two you know cross in front of cars at night or something maybe maybe but for the most part you know didn't didn't ever see one in the wild then I read Mike's book. And a whole bunch of, you know, without giving too much away from my book, a whole bunch of all synchronicities start happening. And then I start seeing them. I start, I saw one with Allison one day when we were hiking. I saw one by myself one day when I was hiking. The one, uh, a, uh, a barred owl took up residence outside my window. I actually recorded it for, for patrons. If you go back, uh, far enough on the patron thing, patrons, you can hear I just stuck the mic out the window one night and recorded this barred owl as I was sitting here editing the podcast, you know, and that all happened after Mike's book, which is just, you wonder is, is it the kind of thing like psychic tv in the old number 23 where they you know 23 was this magic number and uh they, once they pointed it out you start seeing 23 everywhere but you know was it simply the fact that they pointed it out
2: yeah it's i mean it's and that's part of the problem is that it's really easy to say as soon as you buy a rav 4 you're going to see a bunch of rav 4s on the uh, on the road and i totally get that line of thinking but sometimes it's the activity is so ramped up. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I wonder if you know, but again, it's that sort of baked-in idea of you know, there's no way to tell for sure. Right. <laughs> it's that you know, baked in. Yeah, but um, I, I mean, the,
1: to me, the the Al stuff I was experienced was so of such personal significance that it was unignorable. You know what I mean? Oh no,
2: hundred percent, hundred percent, and and that's you know that's that's where I tend to fall anyway. Having said that, I I think I'm just sometimes I think I'm other death i <laughs> paranormal death <laughs> uh, it's...
1: well we'll try to we'll, we'll try to remedy that when you when you uh, come up this way we'll try to get you to yeah some... but
2: you know you, you say that i don't want you to remedy it
1: too hard you know
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah you don't want to like oh man sometimes it's just anyway i, yeah. I i've been over the raccoon attack you know, I pray that was a completely mundane that's, thing, you know. That's actually
2: a perfect example because you would not believe the number of road-killed raccoons I've seen. Oh yeah, since yeah. you told me that.
1: Yeah, ever since then like I just I see them everywhere. I see them absolutely everywhere since since that happened. But hey, I don't know. I don't know. And then people started coming to me with these stories completely randomly of like hey, have you ever thought about, you know, animals <sighs> you know supernatural things in the form of natural animals and they start coming like and right afterwards people who hadn't heard the raccoon story you know what i mean where i'm just like oh wow where you know i'm getting these stories of fairy groundhogs and spiritual cats and and this and that you know things that appear to be absolutely natural normal animals just start popping up around i'm like whoa that's kind of weird but uh you huh. know, who knows that again that's part of the thing to try to bring it back around changelings here. Yeah, yeah,
2: where did the road go?
1: <laughs> I think we we talked in when we talked changelings it was part of the iron series. So we talked a lot about about preventions for changelings. If you felt your child and we I don't think we did talk about this. So if if people felt their child was a changeling, what did they do at that point?
2: Well, some would skip straight to so, so you could look at it this way. there are means of confirming a changeling, and there are means of retrieving your child and replacing the changeling with your own child. Some people would skip straight to those retrieval methods you know they would press some iron to the child's forehead or they would automatically decide to place the child in an iron. <laughs> in an iron uh, skillet above the fire. I mean, I said this said the book took you to dark places folks. Yeah. Um, more commonly you see at least an attempt to confirm the fact that you have a changeling. And this would usually be some means of getting the changeling to speak to reveal the fact that it was not an actual human child, but in fact an elderly fairy child or an elderly fairy man rather which is the most common changeling that you see in these stories. Um, Sometimes you would make a passing reference to the fact that the nearby fairy fort was on fire and then the fairy would be so startled, the changeling would be so startled that it would either exclaim that it's had to go fetch its tools and then it would be outed. Or sometimes the fact that the the fairy hill was on fire would cause the changeling to get up and flee to go put out the fire. And then you'd turn around and your own human child would be there. Again, that idea that you never actually see the re-exchange Of the human child implies that we're dealing with something that's metaphysical than actually a literal physical abduction. The most common method that you see, and there are a bunch of variations on this, are doing something nonsensical.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and these recipes, in a way, reminded me, they remind me a lot of like folk magic recipes. Like, you know, they tell you to do these very specific things, uh, which, which, you know, remind me of some of these recipes out of like the long lost friend and stuff.
2: Right, these very specific things that shouldn't have any significance, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you know, if, if it's almost like, well, I think I remember. Maybe this is this something that all kids do, or is this just me being weird? Now that I, I just, this memory just popped into my head, but I remember being a kid and thinking about making potions and like just taking things from around the yard and putting them into a pot and like acting like it was a potion. Is that oh no, kids I did that. Do? I totally, okay. Did that. totally okay. Did that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but it almost has that sort of feel to it, right? So in in this specific case, like so, so the idea of creating this absurd space for this for this changeling again, the idea was that you do something so absurd that the elderly changeling man would say, because it was almost always a, a male child that was substituted in these stories, uh, the elderly fairy man would say, "I've lived X number of years, but I've never seen." This particular absurdity,
1: yeah, is like boiling um, is it boiling water in an eggshell, was that one? yeah,
2: of, the know? brewery of eggshells motif, and that that encompasses an entire spectrum of of different uh, behaviors that you could do oftentimes you'd visit a fairy seer, or a fairy man, a fairy woman, or you know whatever your indigenous sort of cunning man or cunning woman were, and they would typically prescribe among again, this is just one of like <laughs> probably forty different methods that I detail in the book, but um one of the most common ones was this brewery of eggshells. Method And they would say that you should need to crack a bunch of egg cells and put water or porridge in them and then set these cracked open eggshells by the fireplace. And eventually the changeling would be so interested in this bizarre behavior that they would actually speak up and say, what are you doing? And you tell them, well, I am you know, I'm, I'm brewing porridge or, you know, again, the liquid in the vessel varies. Um, sometimes it was empty walnut shells. Sometimes in coastal communities it was shellfish, husks or like, you know, clams or mollusks. Sometimes what was inside was beer. Sometimes it was porridge. Sometimes it was oil. A lot of different variations. Right. But uh, eventually the changeling would say, what are you doing? And you'd say, I'm doing whatever. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making porridge or I'm brewing beer. And they'd say something to the extent of, well, you know, 900 years have I lived and I have seen the acorn before the oak was a common one that you used to hear. So the, this implication that I've lived a very long time and never have I seen people making porridge and eggshells. And at this juncture, the, the the parent would usually either threaten the changeling with something, which would make them flee, or do one of several methods, which would be abandoning them, abandoning them rather in some sort of liminal space, shoving them out on the dung heap, uh, again baking them, pressing hot tongs to their toes, splashing them in the face with urine, beating them senseless. There are a, a thousand different different methods by which it could be the child could be restored, and you know if you look at Again, sort of tying into that idea about this having some sort of metaphysical basis. Sometimes I wonder, I mean, all these, all the methods for actually restoring your child, well, I say all, a majority, um, involve some sort of abuse. There are some where, like, you'd actually, like, pass a wreath over a child or something, something to that extent where you'd actually, like, you know, you'd actually act like you're going to burn the child or you would, you know, pray over the child. Anyway, most of them involved abuse. And I wonder if, if we are dealing with something metaphysical, that the very act of abusing, the child might not shock the spirit out of it. Now, of course, that's sort of something of a controversial opinion to, to suggest, the act that, you know, there could be something positive in an experience like that. Right. But again, invariably in these stories, people will place the changeling somewhere overnight and they'll come back and the changeling will be restored. The actual exchange, re-exchange is never seen. Of course, the idea behind the abuse, you know, from a folkloric perspective, was that the fair folk would actually see that one of their own was being mistreated, and they would actually re-exchange because they didn't want to see one of their own people mistreated. It's one of those things where you could you could literally write a book just on the proposed medical diagnoses, the medical explanations for changelings. You could write a book exclusively dedicated to, uh, you know, these these children who were killed because they were believed to be changelings like that's that's a book in and of itself, and i'm not we're not even talking about adults they were killed I mean one of the famous ones was Bridget Cleary, who was a young lady who was convinced of whose uh, whose husband I believe was convinced that uh, she was a changeling and ended up burning her as well.
1: Wow, so uh, adults were sometimes uh exchanged
2: well i mean and, and here's again another dimension to this it's it's a big 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 ball to big ball of twine to untangle here but another aspect of this is ideas of enforced power structures and patriarchy which is a word that i tend to not throw around too often but it's very apparent that's exactly what's going on here you have the fact that the ones who are are most vulnerable to changelings are women and children. So you know, <laughs> the adult man is is the one who's least susceptible to this phenomena. Uh-huh. Uh, so it's it almost is you know a means of keeping unruly children and women in check. Um. Uh, uh, you could sort of accuse them of those things. There's no shortage of stories where a marriage was dissolved because you know she's actually a changeling now. But uh, yeah, especially women and. There are tons of women and changeling stories of women, young young ladies or or women who died in childbirth that I didn't include. Um, I touched upon it just a little bit, but there are quite a few of 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 adult women who were uh, who were exchanged with uh, changelings as well. Yeah.
1: Well, let's talk about stocks, which is really really interesting. Like, I I guess maybe I'd heard of this before, but uh, there's a there's a lot of this idea of babies being replaced with
2: logs it's a weird one um and it's one that doesn't get a lot of play uh, because honestly it's the least common substitute for children but it's this idea that there would be some sort of inanimate object typically a stock or a fetch would be a way to describe basically a log but this could be anything from an effigy to you know uh even a dead child Sort of is behind this ideas behind this, but the stock is what we'll sort of focus on, which is the notion of a, like I said, a log that's been glamored to appear as a fairy or as a human child, uh, and over time would sort of reveal itself to be stiff and immobile. A lot of people think this might be a way of explaining uh, sudden infant death syndrome, or uh, perhaps you know some sort of infant infantile paralysis. But there's some really interesting. Uh, ideas behind this, this pretty innocuous idea of the stock. If you look at what s- stocks are in horticulture, there are means of intertwining two separate plants into one singular plant. So there's this motive of motif rather of hybridity sort of built into that particular idea, which I think is really interesting. If you look at sort of the alien human hybrid idea that you know, there are these hybrids, well, you've know, got this sort of tangential relationship to the stock. What I found really compelling, and of course so maybe I should back up why I'm even talking about alien-human hybrids to begin with. So I've, I've drawn comparisons ad nauseum to these alien-human hybrids in ufo- ufological circles, this idea that extraterrestrials will abduct an individual Combine their DNA with either exclusively extraterrestrial DNA or their DNA with another abductee and extraterrestrial DNA and create and gestate a human alien hybrid, which at some point will be presented to the mother typically the mother, sometimes the father, in a sort of baby presentation. And there are multiple aspects of this which find antecedent in in fairy lore, uh, which we may or may not get into, (laughs) but I'm trying to keep it sort of a little bit more focused. The descriptions of these hybrid children are a pretty close match for descriptions of changelings. Large heads, large eyes, spindly legs, a sense of being either too light or too heavy. Um... Interestingly enough, they do not seem to be cranky or overly hungry like changelings did, but they do seem to have the listlessness that you find in some changeling reports, the idea that they're just sort of hanging out. Having said that, we've already addressed this idea of the stocks, which is you know this idea that the changeling itself was actually a bit of a like a log. I was extremely surprised to discover that there is a school of thought among ufologists, not necessarily ufologists that I put a lot of stock into nah. pardon the pun. <laughs> um, but there is a school of thought that claims that anyone handling one of these human alien hybrids will have their points of contact fluoresce violet-ish pink under black light I'm not sure if I believe that or not but I find it really interesting that chlorophyll is one of the substances that will fluoresce purpley pink under black light so you have this, you know, to, to draw direct comparison, stocks were basically logs. And you have people who handle these human-alien hybrids showing up with what looks like chlorophyll on their hands. I think that there's there's something interesting in there. I don't know quite what to make of it. You know, the ufologist will say that means that he, aliens are plant-based. <laughs> um, you know, folklorists will say that means it's just a re- repetition of a motif. I don't really know where to draw that line, but I think it's interesting that you have that sort of plant uh, that plant connection, even up through the modern day, with with these human alien hybrids. As far as um, the reality of these stocks, I cited someone. You know, there are these. There's this phenomenon of fairy artifacts all throughout the British Isles: fairy shoes, fairy chalices, fairy jerkins, fairy hats. Like these are th- these are supposedly relics that have been recovered, and some of them are quite compelling. There's actually, I believe, a fairy shoe that was recovered that was just maybe an inch or so long that was made out of mouse leather. I don't know how is that, you... Is that the one Patrick Harper talks about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. it is. Yeah, it yeah. is. I don't know who goes to the effort, and I don't know how you tan mouse leather. like, I don't... <laughs> um, And I don't know how you fashion a tiny shoe out of it. Anyway, having said that, fairy flags are another one. There uh, has been no real recovered fairy stock, which is really interesting. I, I'm not sure you know, if that implies that it's strictly metaphorical or if there's... However, just... yeah.
1: in your However, book... There is a recovered sort of Bigfoot stock. I'd never heard that story before. It's fantastic.
2: I don't know what to make out of this. I mean, but at the same time, the motifs are there. So, you know, bringing this around to Bigfoot and I'm sure we'll, you know, I I will be touching on this in our new book. But you see echoes of this stock idea. You know, it's, it's very common amongst Bigfooters. To suggest that Bigfoot are so adept at stopping and standing still that somehow they end up looking like tree pumps or you know, or or logs, which I I mean, I don't I don't know I don't know if I could ever mistake fur for bark, but maybe at a certain distance that's possible. So not only have it sort of explained in that way, but there is a story out of uh, I believe it was somewhere in the Pacific Northwest, I think it was idaho where well i guess idaho is kind of the kind of the northwest who it was sorry no it was washington sorry um who claimed to have watched a bigfoot walk briefly into the woods and then lay down and turn into a log and supposedly she dragged it into her house where she used it as a coffee table
1: right that is amazing which is like
2: i love that i I know i love that story so much like um I have no idea if it has any truth to it, but I love it. Now, what's interesting is that I sort of drew a parallel to this. So stocks were also commonly employed to abduct mothers with their children. And there's a famous changeling variant story of this father who hears sawing and hammering coming from his barn. And he's curious because he's the only one there that day. Or he's he's not, but he's only you no know, help there that day. His, his wife and child are in the other room. And he goes into the barn and he sees nothing it looks like people have just dropped their tools but there is this giant wooden effigy of his wife and he thinks it's really odd but he takes a look at the finger and one of the fingers is sort of offset like a bone that's been broken and not healed correctly and he recalled when he was hearing this hammering and sawing and pounding that a voice say mind the crooked finger and the idea behind this was that the fairies were actually constructing this effigy to take the mother and the child away so basically this was a version of a stock changeling for a, for a woman so the in order to foil the fairies the uh the father tosses a bible into the into the uh, <clears throat> barn and says some holy words and then he's left with this giant <laughs> this giant you know wooden effigy of his wife this stock of his wife and in that story he supposedly takes that stock into his house and uses it as a cutting board. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I see some I see some some similarities between that story and the coffee table Bigfoot story. Yeah. Um but yeah, coffee table Bigfoot. Yeah. I want a Bigfoot coffee table. I
1: know, right? That's amazing. That's like first of all, that takes some guts, too. Like I'm I'm going to drag it inside my house and then just use it as a coffee table.
2: Yeah, and in case anybody wonders the source, that was uh, Barton Nunnally's Uh, 2017 update of his book the inhumanoids which i have no reason i have not seen anything to make me ever doubt barton's uh, credibility he was part of the family that was involved with the spotsville monster
1: yeah incredible story incredible story he also one of the first people i saw to collect the flannel man in the mine story oh okay yeah which which i don't believe he you know specifically calls flannel man but i mean by by description Guy in flannel, you know, in a mine, comes out and uh, tells the miners, hey, you're going to be rescued, and then walks back through a door in the side of the mine that no one can ever find again.
2: Now, is that is that your only flannel man in a mine story? So
1: far, uh, I believe. I believe, yeah.
2: Because there's no shortage of stories with that motif of something coming through a door that you can't see, and then I'm reminded of the Tommyknockers.
1: Yes, which we have in Pennsylvania, by the way. You talk about these creatures following import populations
2: um right. where
1: we have welsh miners we have Tommyknockers. knockers
2: right which is you know <laughs> how much more interesting would Stephen King's book have been if it was about <laughs> actual Tommyknockers? <laughs> yeah yeah i mean uh,
1: missed opportunity mr king which i'm i know he listens so
2: but this is where i say and of course there are better there's better there are better fits that everyone will get to read about in hopefully 20 20 <laughs> um but uh yeah knockers tommy knockers yes the knocks are something that the more you get into it the more you, the more you talk to magicians and stuff that seems to very much a spirit phenomena sort of thing
1: Hmm. yeah coming into it first from bigfoot and then expanding my perspective to these other things like oh you know slaps on the wall that's bigfoot well no i mean yes but Also,
2: yeah, right, yeah. Um, the thing that I'm, and again, part of what this is so frustrating is that you look at there's this real, there's a bulk of phenomena that sit at the center of fairies and poltergeist and spirits and witches, tossing of rocks, knocks. I mean, all all these all these things are there, and they're also there. You know, with with the Bigfoot thing, Mm -hmm. um, it becomes a little bit more difficult. That's you know, that's a conversation to be had about sightings of bigfoot actually throwing things that's plenty there's you know plenty of those they're not super common but there are plenty of them mm-hmm. but yeah it's just um i'm so i'm sorry i don't mean to keep on bringing it back to weird bigfoot but that's the headspace that i'm in right now <laughs> yeah oh yeah well i tell you what
1: we are going to give away two copies of thieves in the night a brief history of supernatural child abductions this book is available, if you don't happen to be one of the lovely people that that is a patron and wins a copy, you can get it from Anomalous Books. It's on Amazon. It's available at your bookstore. You can order it uh, from there. It's Joshua Cutchin, Thieves of the Night, A Brief History of Supernatural Child Abductions. Josh, we're going to have you pick two random numbers, unless you have a 173-sided die. Do you have one of those? <laughs> oh man, um, no. <laughs> okay, well then we're gonna do two numbers between one and one
2: hundred seventy-three. Oh geez. Okay, let's do one thirty-eight. Okay, that's a lot. That's, uh, I take it these are Patreon numbers, right? Yeah. Got it. Okay. I was like, that's usually it's one and ten. I'm like, geez. Okay, uh, so the. F- First
1: winner is Rachel Sandwick. Rachel Sandwick, you have won a copy of Thieves in the Night. I will be in touch to get your address. A signed copy might we add. A signed copy, absolutely. And I will ask you for number number two, or your second number. All right, 22. These these have been randomized, but there's a big long list, so I have to uh, go through the list. here and we'll get to number 22 brian waters you are a winner of a copy of thieves in the night congratulations nice. congrats brian brian waters and rachel sandwick i will be in touch and i will mail you your copies of thieves in the night josh thank you for coming on where can people find josh Cutchen?
2: joshua you can find out, see, I'll listen to all my interviews if you're a real glutton for punishment. And <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to be a little bit better about blogging on there. I've been being a little bit more prolific with that. So that's that. I am on Where Did the Road Go, also on a semi-regular basis. Pro- probably my life's getting a little bit crazy, so maybe a little bit less uh, recent uh, coming up. But uh, you can find all three of my books. A Trojan Feast, The Brimstone Deceit, and Thieves in the Night at Barnes & Noble or Amazon.com, or ask your library, or ask your brick-and-mortar store. All those are good options.
1: Awesome. Thank you, Josh. Have a good one. You're welcome, Tim. Appreciate it. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com if you're on Facebook, look us up, or facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. We also have the Strange Familiars Gathering group there, so you can check that out. Join and share news stories and interact with other people and so forth. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. Hail to the desert sun, to the swirling sand, to the lonely men who write divine words, all with a mortal.